Transfer round two of the playoffs off to a roaring start. The Leafs have done their postseason availability. We're not going to get into that because that's not what this show's all about. Well, we might a little bit later because uh, I know you can't help yourself. And uh, the Battle of Alberta gets started tonight. We might touch on that as well. But it is another episode. We haven't done this for a while of Canucks Mailbag. We asked for your questions last night. We've got a number of them today because Canuck fans, of course, are fully engaged 24-7. They want to know all about their team. And this comes on the heels of a pretty good article that both you and Harm put together on suggestions, solutions, ideas, uh, creative ideas for how the Canucks could potentially free up some cap space and make some moves this offseason. Yeah, and, you know, it's cap week at the Athletics. So first on Monday, I modeled out what cap space the Canucks have. And then yesterday, Harmon and I put together six concepts because... You know, Vancouver's in a little bit of a ditch. I think we should accept that. Like, I think fans have to accept that this team's sort of, you know, not not positioned in a prime kind of way, regardless of what direction they want to go. Uh, if you want to, you know, Jim Rutherford this week used the word unravel the club's cap situation. Uh, it, it's not going to be easy in part because this team doesn't have enough futures to really juice the sort of, you know, trade off the Marlowe contract or the Andrew Ladd contract or the uh, Anton Strawman contract, uh, make one of those types of deals just because they can't afford to take that kind of step back within their prospect system. So, you know, sort of shedding cap space requires a little bit more delicacy, a little bit of a different approach, a little bit more creativity uh, this summer for, for new Canucks leadership. And we sort of modeled out six ways that it might look based on history, based on where the Canucks stand. And as you look through those six concepts, I mean, I think they can apply to just about every player, aside from maybe Pedersen, Hughes, Demko, and Pod Colson. And that's sort of where we're at as we wait to see what direction this club charts this summer. And it's amazing that this quickly we put Pod Colson in that discussion, as he should be. Uh, but, you know, he, he very quickly, based on how he finished the season and the upside we see from him, is a part of the core that you simply just don't want to move. And also important to note, we touched on this in the last show, that, yeah, on the surface, it looks like the Canucks have a reasonable amount of cap space heading into this offseason, even if they get Brock Besser extended. But right. the issue becomes that – you can't just make a decision in a vacuum based on this year because of what else is due as far as Miller and Horvat. And then another year from now, you've got to take a long look at Pedersen as well. So when you look at all of that, you can't jump in this year because whatever you do is going to require some term, which affects you next year. And you, you don't want to go down that road with short-term thinking because that's what got the organization into this unfortunate position yeah. to begin with. That's certainly my read, but, you know, I, I'd sort of look at it this way, Farhan. The Canucks cap crunch, like the Canucks have been in a cap crunch situation where you needed to perform surgery before making major moves in, in the last two years. This year, they don't have that. But the cap crunch isn't over just because they're not facing one this summer. It's paused. It's still coming next year. It's still coming the year after. And the club has to be very careful uh, in, in sort of, treating the flexibility that they do have this summer as if it's immensely fragile. So with that, let's dive into the mailbag. We'll start with our good friend, Kara Sangara, known as Red Yoga Socks. Can uh, the get in and anything can happen topic please not come up? Yes, I think that's fair to say, Karis. We will make sure we do not do that. We exhausted that the last time. Uh, beat it. Uh, 
we 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 hit it over the head. Drancer set a new record for how much he talked over me and interrupted me. So all of <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and that was that was a high bar. So <laughs> <laughs> um, but but can we talk about the Blue Jays' two consecutive wins over the Mariners? No, we can't because the Mariners are banged up and it doesn't matter. It only matters when the Mariners are doing well, which will happen in July is, when is everybody gets back up? into the lineup. Is and I'll be going to that because it'll be fun for me to go and not have those def- like just annoying, annoying, lame ass Blue Jay fans wow. showing up. We don't want that. So there'll be less of that wow. in July. I'll make sure I get there for at least one of the games. And I'm looking forward to that. You know, my son actually has a couple of his his, his best friends now that are that are on the baseball team here locally. So they want to go. So we're like, OK, we'll, we'll make sure we go to that. But we will do it when, you know, in a, in a time like this year when we can't have nearly as many annoying Blue Jay fans there because it just won't happen that way because travel still isn't 100% easy and convenient. It, it's such a party when when the Blue Jays fans take over uh, Safeco or whatever it's called now, Verizon. T-Mobile, it's, it's, you, you know, the field is about a thousand times better than what the Blue Jays play. And yes, we oh, know that. Sorry, one. sorry. No question about that. The Skydome's uh see, I, I like to use retro names. Uh, the Skydome is a, is a disaster. but. But all of that said, it's, all that it's said, bordering on worst park in the majors. Oh, no question for, for okay, atmosphere, right? So cement it's, mausoleum. It's good that the uh, the Blue Jays play there. It's only fitting for their fans to is, get there. That's uh, why they they want to come once a year to an actual good baseball park. Is banged up? By the way, the term banged up is that a synonym for not very good? Or hey, are you, you said at the start else? of the year how much better this Mariner team was this year? So don't backtrack on that now because they made enough moves. So. You, you know, you're you're the expert. You went through that, so now you want to trail on that. That's okay. Yeah, but yeah. If, you know, they I, they'll they'll get to nerve. what their I actual true nerve. talent level is, and once they're healthy, then they will get to that true talent level. And then we'll have this discussion. A, a game because or two, it, sub five hundred. Because everybody makes it into the playoffs in baseball now. It sucks. 80, uh, 80, 80 wins. Good, good for the Mariners. Hey, you you Best said they were a good team, team in baseball. You said they were a good team at the start they, of the year. They, I'm gonna I'm gonna live. Like I, I will like live it. on that. All right, let's get to um, let's get to relevant topics, not the Blue Jays. Uh, from uh, Artem uh, Zukarovsky, Zukovsky, I should say. Mm-hmm. Uh, who do you see as potential trade targets for the Canucks? I mean, not the dream scenario, but who might actually fix some deficiencies on the roster? The dream scenario: who's who might fix some deficiencies on the roster? Well, that might actually a- reasonably av- be available. There's a lot of deficiencies on the roster. So there's a lot of guys who could potentially be available that could help. And, you know, among them, right, is I think you're looking for a top four defenseman, right? You're certainly looking for guys with two-way intelligence. Uh, I think you're looking for size up front, some, some hardness. I think you're looking for speed. So anyone that sort of fits within that, you know, mold, I think it makes some sense. And then you sort of go down the list of teams that might need to make players available due to their cap positioning and, you know, pick a guy as, as a guy to target. Right. So, um, you know, if you start with what, what's a team, what's a team that's really capped out. You start with like Dallas. Um, yeah. Minnesota as well. Minnesota. Right. So Minnesota, uh, Matt Dumba looks like the most obvious guy who they're going to have to move. He would certainly help. <laughs> that's a that's that's a target that makes a ton of sense. That also flies in the face of the discussion about looking ahead on your cap when you bring in a guy like Matt Dumba. Correct. Although he's only got this year and next, but yeah, you wouldn't be looking to acquire him 
as a rental, he's a really good player, right? You'd be looking to acquire him as a long-term fixture. So you're right. Unless you're, unless you're shedding money elsewhere, that's probably not an ideal option. A uh, guy like Pierre Engvall in Toronto, or Alex Kerfoot, those guys would stand out to me. Um, you know, go, sort of who, who else is capped out? Philadelphia. There's a ton of forwards on, on the Philadelphia Flyers that I think would certainly help. Certainly be the types of players that could help. You look through Washington's roster, you know, the, I mean, obviously there's the high end guys, but. The high-end guys are too old to fit this team's window. Totally. And and honestly, even some of the supporting cast is too old to fit this team's window. But, you know. And for, a, and for me, I think like, the. A I guy think like the, a Nick Jensen or a Dmitry Orlov, right? Like, that would certainly add some two-way heft to Vancouver's blue line. Um, but, you know, those are those are the types of guys that sort of come to mind, having not significantly prepared to answer this question before we recorded. <laughs> yeah, you know, when I look at it, you know, I always think that the, when you listed the things this club needs from, uh, you know, a little more size and physicality to uh, two-way defensemen to um, just overall speed and things like that. I mean, there's clearly not an area this team doesn't have need, but you got to go in order. And when you look at the the physical pieces, and we talked about this in the last show, that the importance of getting some more size and where that fits into the Canucks pecking order. Like to me, I think that's a next off season thing because you need that before you can be a legitimate team to compete in the playoffs. And, you know, next year you want to just get in because anything can happen, of course, but you hope you've made enough improvements to get to that point. But when you become a serious contender, you're going to need more of the size and, and physicality. I think that could be a later add, whereas puck moving defensemen so that you can play with structure and not just punt and hunt and be more functional in terms of how you exit. I think you need that immediately, right? And when we yeah. look at needs, we look at defensemen as the primary first need and so to me, puck moving defenseman has to be the first need, and that's going to be the biggest thing they need to zero in on this offseason. And speaking of that, any update on Tucker Pullman? This from Bird, given his quick setback, is he going to be able to play again? I mean, I, I know that his agent talked to Rick uh, last week and said that he's trending in the right direction, but they're not willing to make any pronouncements clearly that he absolutely is going to be ready and available. Well, and I think there's internal concern about exactly where Pullman is and and how available he might be for next season and I think that's why you know looking at the right side of the defense core is likely to be a, a significant the significant priority for the Canucks this offseason and, and partly why they might consider shifting Oliver Ekman Larson over to the right side so you know certainly there is concern we 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 hope the best for Tucker Pullman for a variety of reasons uh, hopefully he's able to come back, resume his playing career, be a fully available for the Canucks next season. I think they're very high on the player. They're very high on the person. Um, but I do think there's uncertainty as to his status. Of course, there there has to be. When when a player sustains repetitive head injuries in that manner, it's deeply worrying, right? I mean, it, it's, you know, an awful situation. So um, no more update than that. The agent says he's trending in the right direction. Uh, the team is hopeful that he's trending in the right direction, but uh, but significant uncertainty will always linger when a player, you know, is like wearing tinted visors at morning skate one day and then tries to return and immediately sustains a, a reoccurrence of, you know, concussion-like symptoms. I mean, that's that's a terrible situation. Terrible. Yeah, and you know, we when you look at this, it, it's easy to just think of Michael Furland. Right. And there were times during this process because there were repeated 
moments where Furlan tried to come back, even in the minors, and then it didn't work out. And all the way through, there was optimism from the agent and optimism from within the organization. And that's where you've got to be, because as much as anything else, when you're optimistic, you're also optimistic for the guy's future, just regardless, right? So uh, I think people want to be in that direction. And you can't assume that it's going to go down the Furland uh, path, because if you look at a guy like Sidney Crosby, who missed it, you know multiple huge chunks of games before eventually he was able to get his career back. So it, it may work for Tucker Pullman, but you know, as much as anything else, we hope he's healthy. And, and um, uh, you know, you'd mentioned the organization, the new management team was happy with his his play and what they've seen to this point, even though they got a minimal sample size of it in person. Um, they think that he can still be an important part of uh, that blue line. So, and that certainly is is affecting their thinking as far as Oliver Ekman Larson and which way it goes. So, first of all, let's hope he's okay just for his own personal health. And then we'll see what it does to the Canucks blue line situation. From Conrado Parodies, which team can the Canucks target exploit who are desperate to accelerate their own rebuild and cut corners with a JT Miller trade a la when the Canucks made their JT Miller trade with Tampa? Ottawa? Who could they, who could they send him to? Ottawa? I think is, you think Ottawa's looking to accelerate just because of where Pierre Dorian is right now? And well, the, you, the, you, yeah, you're hearing reports that they're going to dangle the seventh overall pick. Uh, yeah. We know we know they have a ton of interesting young talent uh, within that organization. Guys that you know, like guys that are redundant pieces for them, but would be potentially significant pieces for Vancouver, right? Like they have, they don't have the top end that Vancouver has, but in terms of that next level, that next layer of depth, you trade Ottawa's situation for Vancouver's. You know, I, I mean, aside from the top three or four guys. Ottawa's Ottawa's guys five through you know fifteen are probably better, right? Like probably better to be totally honest with you, right? Because the Canucks don't have like an answer for a Connor Brown or an Alex Formanton or you know a, a Victor Mete or a Eric Brandstrom or you know go down the list. I mean, there's a there's a bunch of those types of players. Like if you take out Norris, Kachuk, Pedersen, Hughes, Shabbat, um, Demko. Right then, and then you get into Ottawa having like Drake Batherson. Well, the Canucks don't have a Drake Batherson, right? Like you, you know. It, so, you know, I mean that one. That one stands out to me. Uh, Philadelphia, Philadelphia stands out to me for a lot of reasons. Um, there's certainly a lot of pressure on that organization after a 60 point season. They were 30th in goals scored last year. They need a lot of help in every area, um, and they have some nice pieces. They have some really interesting pieces too. Um, New Jersey, we know New Jersey's had interest in, in players like Miller and Garland, um, in the past, Besser too, they've got, a, they, they, like Ottawa, right? There's a lot of those sort of depth level players. Like I even think about that Zetterland kid, um, you know, some of those 23 and, and really interesting Sharon Govich, uh, who's the big Czech centerman that the Canucks were reportedly tied to earlier in the year. Uh, who's an RFA? Do you remember his name? I can't remember his I name. I don't right know. Now. It's slipping my mind for no reason. But, you know, th that layer of young player that the Canucks organization just basically doesn't have, um, you know, at least in a player that's likely to likely to be available. So um, I need to look this up. I'm sorry. I can't, like, move on with my day until I know this guy's name. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know why. It just, it just uh, Zaka, excuse me, Pavel Zaka. So, 
Um, yeah, I mean, those are those are teams that stand out to me as potential um, potential clubs that might be willing to move on a deal like that. And, you know, I, I, I certainly think that could be tempting depending on where negotiations with Miller go. Yeah, and, and I'm curious to see as much as Jim Rutherford has said that, look, we don't have to make a decision this offseason. We can wait just how anxious both sides are to get some direction. I mean, in the case of Miller, you want to get it done this offseason. Uh, you want this past year to be your platform year. You don't have to wait for a potential hiccup next year. You know, you're not going to necessarily outperform last year in a meaningful way to get you more meaningful dollars. You want to do it now. There's more risk for him to wait. You know, and from a from a club perspective, you don't know how it's going to affect his asset value, but you want to have some direction as to what the numbers look like this offseason so you can make some decisions you know, if you're miles apart, you got to make that decision, right? But if you're if you're close, maybe you wait it out a little bit, right? And that maybe he goes down a, a small amount, but you could still make that decision at some point early in the season. Um, well, especially, especially because, and I don't know that we've talked about this enough, but I, I got the aging curves, the games um, game score value at um, added the GSVA um, aging curves from Dom, and I'll write about this this week, maybe tomorrow, and. You know, one thing we forget about with Miller, right, is over the last four years, he's been, you know, he's vacillated wildly year to year from being like a low end top line guy, like a top line supporting piece in 2017 or so. Yeah, sorry, 2018, 19 for the Tampa Bay Lightning His last season in Tampa. Right. He bounced around the lineup, but his overall contributions were at the level of like a low end top liner, a bona fide top six guy. And then his first year in Vancouver, um, 1920, he was elite. He was an elite compliment on that line with Besser and Pedersen. And then the next year that, you know, pandemic abbreviated 2021 campaign, like people don't remember this, but it's not like he was an elite. He wasn't Vancouver's best forward that year. Brock Besser was right. Like he wasn't great by any means. He was good. But he was top six good. He wasn't stud elite piece good. In well, no, nobody was that year. Nobody was no, that year. It was ugly was on so year. many levels. The best thing well, JT Miller did that season was make sure the schedule got changed. Right. But no one was that year. Sure. But, I mean, Pedersen, or sorry, uh, Besser and Horvat as examples, like their level was roughly what we'd expect from them. You know, like in Horvat's case, he was the exact same player that year. As he is every single year. Yeah, but you're also and, looking at Miller transitioning to center and playing extended minutes there with no wingers on any level. And, you know, his biggest issue was the turnovers in his two-way play. Year. That's what he did this year. Yeah, but he had a sec. This was his second year in that role. He prepared for it. Like, he was ready for it. Like, as much as he used to tell us that, yeah, you know, I like playing center and I like having, you know, that much more control of the game. We're talking about the bubble year now. Uh, sorry, not the bubble year, but the, the empty stands year, the Canadian division year. Yeah. Um, he was clearly not good at it that season. And we all looked at it and said, this player is miles better, especially in terms of two-way impact when he's playing on the wing. Whereas this past year, you know, he played extended time at center, but, you know, I, I think he, he gave him a little bit of an opportunity to at least get comfortable with it. Yeah, but I mean, he still was playing center with no wingers for large tracks of this year, right? I mean, some of his best games coming with Chase on and Pod Colson on his wings, right? Um and, you know, I still look at it, look at his game and say, hey, his uh, defensive impact is far better on the wing and I like him better there. Uh, so, 
you know, but this year his production was elite. I mean, he was an elite piece for this team this year. So, I, I mean, that's something we haven't talked about a lot. Uh, yeah, I think when teams look at JT Miller, they see a guy whose game will completely translate into the playoffs. And if we're in win now mode, this guy can play center. He can play wing. He can now kill penalties. He can play in every situation. And he is a playoff made player on the surface. There is nothing, nothing I like better if I'm a team potentially considering dangling a guy than everyone in the industry looking at a guy and declaring that they're a playoff ready player when there's literally no evidence for it. Right. I mean, the, um, like the Jake Vertanen thing, right? Like if you would, would have, if you would have had this take three years ago in Vancouver, people would have laughed at you. And yet it's completely true, which is Troy Stetcher is the guy better made to elevate his game in the playoffs than Jake Vertanen. People would have laughed at you. And yet, I think we knew in this market that Jake Vertanen was, despite his appearance, you you and I did. But the way that he was talked about by fans, the way that he would have been valued at certain points. Three years ago, um, maybe earlier. I would say earlier. Okay, maybe a little earlier. Like, oh, you just need to make it to the playoffs and he's going to do incredible stuff, right? Like, you know, in JT Miller's case, and I know he was point per game with Vancouver, uh, that one bubble run. But I mean, this is not a guy... This is not a guy like this is a guy who's played 78 games in the playoffs in his career with 44 points, nine goals. So, you know, the idea that you're the, the idea that he's going to be valued around the league by people being like proven playoff performer when it's like he's played a full season there and he was a 40 point guy. Um, yeah, you know, but I think that, his entire that, game has matured in Vancouver over what we saw previously. Perfect. Perfect. I hope the whole, if if you're the Canucks and you're considering moving him, you're hoping everyone around the industry believes that too, because it's really hard to look at a guy and say that guy that guy's made for the playoffs and that guy's not and be right. You just don't know. You just don't know at playoff time. Uh, so many good questions to get to here. First, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and look at Vancouver's third line center options. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone. Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. From Philip Barrington, Drancer, what are some third-line center options that the Canucks could realistically afford who can fit in with the age range this team is looking for this season? And then from uh, Puck, what you heard, a uh, pretty good response, Dickinson. <laughs> I don't hate that. I don't um, either. <laughs> that is very good. Uh, there's not a lot. There's not a lot. The guy that stands out to me is uh, out of Vegas, a uh, guy named Nick Waugh. Um you know, he's an RFA this year. Vegas has cataclysmic cap issues. I wonder if there's an opportunity there uh, to steal a pretty good young player. He's 25, plays center, plays wing, big, can win draws, can pitch in offensively. Uh, he's sort of the guy who immediately springs to mind for me on the, on the sort of center list. I sort of wonder about, you know, uh, we talked about Zaka, um, you know, Pierre Engvall is still a guy that I think can play center in this league. That stands out to me as well. And then, you know, here, here's a weird option for you. But um, 
Colin White. Colin White hmm. out of Ottawa. He's um he's at that age where he can be bought out at a one thirds clip, right? As opposed to a two thirds clip. The Senators he had a great rookie year or a great second season, and the Senators paid him just a massive haul of money, like five years times six. And he's been pretty repeatedly injured or underperformed in the two two and a half seasons since during the pandemic. And while he's not going to live up to that type of contract, when you look through his impact, when you look through the two-way numbers, there's there's a lot to like there. There's a lot to like there. That guy, you know, can play for sure. He's just probably, he, just, he got too much too soon. Um, and at that stage of his career, wasn't the, the type of guy that the Senators were betting on. So, you know, that to me is an interesting opportunity to track because, you know, there could be value there. Uh, well above and beyond, um, you know, the, the, like a free acquisition cost, right? If, if that guy's free, uh, I think there's a really interesting opportunity for Vancouver. Um, you know, uh, besides that, you're getting into your Andrew Kopp, Evan Rodriguez, Vladislav Nemesnikov tier of unrestricted free agents. Um, Nico Sturm out of, out of Colorado. Those guys He's don't necessarily all fit the age window, right? Oh, they pretty much. Do they? I mean, Nemesnikov too? Okay. Yeah, they're all the, the Nemesnikov is a year younger than Bo Horvat. Okay. because uh, he was also a London Knight. So or maybe he's a year older. Excuse me. He's a year older than Bo Horvat. He was twenty the twenty twelve draft where Horvat was the twenty thirteen. So, you know, across the board, I think you're looking at you know, that in unrestricted free agency, obviously, the the age of the players is gonna be late twenties. But um, those are some of the options that stand out to me, uh, just like, you know, top of my head guys, I'd be tracking before we get too far away from JT Miller, who we talked about before the break, uh, from Canucks content, if Malkin walks, would Pittsburgh be a good destination for a JT trade? Well, it depends what they want to do, how they want to use this inflection point season. Um, but you know, JT Miller is a Pittsburgh area guy, right? Yep. If they if they want to get like somewhat younger but still be going for it, then JT Miller makes a ton of sense. And we know that there's a lot of players in that Pittsburgh organization that the Canucks would highly value. So, yeah, I mean, I think you can see that making sense. Yeah, definitely. I mean, as as much as anything, though, that both Rutherford and Alvin are going to be so familiar with the players there, and they're they're kind of right on the bubble because they want to keep that window open, and it's just kind of it's it's right there, right? It's right there in terms of where that direction needs to go. And, and whether they need to take a little bit of a step back to take a step forward at this stage, well, and, but and you've got you've got uh, one of Pittsburgh's favorite sons, Vincent Trocheck, who's an unrestricted free agent. Uh, Trocheck and Miller work out together in the summers. Um, you know, could you bring in a couple of Pittsburgh guys if you're the Penguins and be like, this is part of the new era? Uh, a couple of hardworking American-born, you know. Guys, hard work in steel town blue, kids. Blue collars, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean that not the worst, not the worst pitch, uh, if you're pivoting away from some franchise icons in, in Pittsburgh's case. Let's talk goaltending with Spencer Martin. Uh, this is from Rich M. With Spencer Martin breaking out this year, does that alter the Canucks' plans for Di Pietro and Silovs? Do either of these two become a sweetener to offload an anchor contract? I'm not sure that Silovs. Uh, has that cachet, but Di Pietro's a, a guy that was taken fairly high in the draft and has some pedigree and uh, still has that ceiling. Do you think he could be a potential sweetener dancer? I mean, 
I, I don't see him as like a sweetener in a shed money type situation. You know what I'm saying? Like that's not, he's not going to help you get off of a really bad contract. But is but, he a meaningful asset in a trade? Yes. And, you know, I think the Canucks wouldn't move him unless they're getting a meaningful return back. Um, you know, I, I think he's, I think they rightly see him as, you know, former Team Canada World Junior Championship goalie. He's got pretty good AHL numbers the last two years. He's still really young. Um, you know, I, I don't think that's the type of player that they'd give away at this juncture. He's waiver exempt for several years beyond this one, right? There's a ton of boxes that he ticks if you're a team, right? Like, if you're a team signing him, because he's an RFA this summer, if you're a team signing him to a, you know, two-year... 800k type deal or or even a two-way deal um maybe it's a three-year deal that becomes a one-way deal over the latter two years like there's a chance that you get an eight hundred thousand dollar backup for at least a season out of di pietro based on his pedigree based on you know his ahl performance like that's a that's a useful bet for someone to place if they really believe in the guy and there's a lot of cachet there's a lot of people who do really like the player they like the character of the kid um di pietro to me though that's a situation to watch for, for sure. Um, you know, obviously at a scintillating rookie year performance, he got completely hosed during the pandemic, jerked around. Um, the club really struggled to make that situation work. And I wonder how much it affected him and, and strained the relationship between player and team this season. You know, at the end of the day, Martin's two-year one-way deal speaks volumes right about where he stands in the organizational pecking order and you know i i've heard a lot of chatter a lot of people wondering around the industry whether or not both di pietro and the canucks may end up looking for a fresh start so we'll, we'll see where that lands um but i don't i don't expect that the canucks would value di pietro as if he weren't a top prospect in the event that they do decide to gauge his value or even or even shop him a little more aggressively than that this offseason yeah i mean i you know i just compare his situation to demko's when demko was in that season where he was able to basically demand the backup job right i mean ultimately he didn't want it we always have these decisions with goaltenders that is the goaltender better served playing in the minors uh, a ton of games or being a backup to a heavy workload goaltender right and ultimately demko wanted to be here and was able to leverage that and make sure he got here and in the case of Di Pietro, they're kind of at similar stages, but he's not in a position to do that because on some levels he's been passed in the organization. Uh, I, I don't know that it's necessarily long-term, but short-term, um, and Spencer Martin's not an old goaltender, short-term, he has been passed in the organization for that backup role, yeah. right? So as he goes into, uh, you know, he's got two years left on his deal, but then, you know, this coming year becomes a, a bit of a platform year and... We, you know, what leverage do you have? Because Demko's not going anywhere. He's on a really, really good team con team friendly deal now that he's already almost outperformed, right? So when you when you look at the situation that Demko is in versus the one that that uh, Di Pietro is in now, it's a challenge, right? And you couple that with just the the terrible situation that he found himself in during the COVID lost year, right, where he just went such an extended period of time without getting to play hockey. Right. I mean, that was tough for his development on a lot of levels. So if you think he's taken a bit of a step back that allowed Spencer Martin to sneak in and let's be honest, Martin, it was just a fortunate situation that he was a third string goaltender in the American League 
that it just made it it made it logistically convenient to bring him up here as the third goaltender in Vancouver. And then he just happened to stumble into some game time and looked really good doing it. So it was all so taken out of uh, Di Pietro's hands, right? Just the circumstances of it all. And then it, eventually when Martin goes back down to the minors, he quickly becomes the number one guy in the minors. Yep. Well, and, you know, I wonder how much the way that Di Pietro's development was handled impacted his season. Not not just from a player development perspective, but also from a relationship perspective. Di Pietro's sort of separating skill set more than more than the athleticism, which he has, more than the more than anything else, really, is that is that competitiveness, the drive, the character. And, you know, I wonder how much he felt discouraged by by how things were handled over the past couple of seasons and, and how much maybe that impacted, you know, impacted that side of his game, right? The the off ice side of this game, uh, of his game this past season, and then with with domino effects that significantly shape some of the organization's decisions and goal and may continue to this off season. Uh, so does does the Martin situation displace either of Di Pietro or Silovs? I don't think it has any impact on Silovs at all, but could it have a significant impact on Di Pietro? Could could we see uh, that situation? Um, you know, come to a head this off season. It's certainly on my watch list, like on well, my, when, on my, on my, put a microscope on it and and wait and see because uh, I do think there's something there. Well, you need to be careful too, right? Because think about two years ago when this organization was that desperate to just get goaltenders in the system, right? Like they they had to you know pluck guys off, you know Louis Domingue, like all of these things that the things that they had to do to just get guys on rosters. And how bereft the goaltending was in the organization. I mean, okay, you had Markstrom and Demko at the top level, but after that, the cupboard was bare. Well, but the domain thing, the domain thing's an example of this organization sort of doing right by Di Pietro. Like at the time, right, the Utica Comets were one of the best teams in the American League. The pandemic hadn't yet hit, and there was this thought process that with Markstrom being hurt, they wanted to leave. Di Pietro down, and and specifically, they wanted to acquire a goalie with NHL experience who could come in and give them games if they needed to. They needed them, but who also was below the line on deadline day, so that he could go back to the American League uh, when Markstrom returned, and and you know set the Comets up for a playoff run. Now the best laid plans, right, of mice and men got got interfered with by a you know once in a. a hundred years, you know, pandemic. But um, that to me was an example of actually looking out for player development in, in, in a sort of way that this organization hasn't always done the best job of. That, that to me was good stuff. My point in all of it is, is that if you all of a sudden move on from a guy like Di Pietro, organizationally, you get real thin in a real hurry. For sure. Well, and you'd need to bring in, you know, one of those guys, like one of those, one of those third backup type guys, a uh, guy with some veteran experience, both to, both to help and insulate, um, sorry, both to help and insulate Silovs down in, um, down in Abbotsford and create a situation where should you need it, you're not throwing Silovs into games, in, you know, earlier than he's ready to handle them, right? So I, I do think you'd end up um, going out onto the market and looking for, 
you know, I, I, I mean, Scott Wedgwood's probably priced himself out, but that type of player, a Dustin Tokarski or, um, you know, Michael Hutchinson or uh, that type of guy, um, you know, a Michael Hauser, uh, probably not Harry Satari, but, um, you know, one of the one of those one of those types of players, just to give you some third goalie insulation, Zane McIntyre, he's like a classic. Uh, organizational depth guy. One one of those guys. I do think that would be something the club would have to strongly consider. From third line winger, is bringing Boudreau back the best result for management? They get to keep the positive vibes around the club in a year. They tread water or go backwards, and then they're able to bring in a coach of their choice once they feel the club is ready to compete. Is you know question mark? Is that what the plan is? That just kind of tread water right now with this coach, and then when you're ready, bring in the other guy. Sorry, one second. Let me, uh, let me, I forgot the most obvious name in listing random organizational depth goalies for the Canucks to consider. White Rocks, Andrew Hammond. That's the answer. That's the, the guy. The Hamburglar. That's the Hamburglar's the guy, right? Like, Hamburglar can play in Abbotsford, come up as a third goaltender. Um, you know, probably didn't do enough with his performance for the Devils, although I know he had that big win over Vegas late in the year. Maybe that opened some eyes around the league, but 34 year old guy. From the lower mainland, uh, might welcome a chance to play at home for Abbotsford. You, know, you give him a pretty solid, you know, AHL salary on a two-way deal. How about Corey uh, Schneider? Well, I mean, that would be amazing because you could groom him to be the next Chris Higgins, Ryan Johnson guy, right? Like Corey Schneider's so smart that if you can bring him into the organization in that type of role with an idea that you're transitioning him into the front office, I think you're gonna then employ one of the, you know, 10 smartest guys in the league. Right? Yeah, you might, like, you might get one more year out of him because he's pretty you, close you, well, to that's, retirement. That's what I'm saying. If you get one more year out of him, but really you're doing it because you're like, this guy's brilliant, hardworking, sharp as attack, and is going to be a great executive or coach or whatever he wants to do, he's going to be great at it post-playing uh, days. Uh, that's That would be the appeal of bringing in Schneider for me. It would be more about like a long-term organizational view. You want a really good, like, you know, the, the best third goalie you can get. The guy who, if you have to throw him in Louis Domingue style into the playoffs, you're not like, well, that's it. That's our season. Andrew Hammond, to me, is the guy. Like, I think if Schneider ends up in that situation at this point in his career, you're, you're kind of you're kind of toast, right? Yeah, but I, it's funny. If you bring him back, that you could just get a, you could find a way to, you know, Louis's not going to come back here as a as an executive, but it might open up the Twitter dialogue again between Schneider and Luongo, and that would be fun too. <laughs> hey, listen, we'll take a quick break, and when we'll come back, we'll get into the coaching question. So again, Drancher, third line winger asks: Is bringing Boudreaux back the best result for management? They get to keep the positive vibes around the club in a year when they tread water or go backwards, and then they're able to bring in the coach of their choice once they feel the club is ready to compete. Is that the idea? Um, I don't know. I mean. I'm curious to know exactly how this all played out, but clearly the organization was willing, very willing to lose this player, right? I mean, there was a willingness to, or sorry, lose this player. There was a willingness clearly with how the Canucks decided to handle this to replace Boudreaux if it came to it. Very obviously. And... You know, the dynamics must have been fascinating because you've got this owner in Francesco Aquilini, uh, the chairman anyway, who, you know, had signed off on all the moves that led to the building of the 2021-22 team. 
and, you know, by his own admission, was shocked by the team's performance over 25 games. And, you know, directly, it was ownership that hired Boudreaux, right? And all of a sudden, Boudreaux comes in and plays, you know, guides this team on a 106-point pace through the latter 56, seven games of the season or whatever. And all of a sudden, all of the moves that everyone in the, in the market was crushing started to look pretty good, right? I mean, there was this, like, moment mid-season. I, I mean, people will remember that I was just getting destroyed every day on Twitter, right? And people were saying things like, did Jim Benning get enough credit in this market? Like, people were really saying stuff like that. That was, like, a regular talking point. Um, I saw it crazy. Right, but, uh, you know, like, it was, it, people were like, well, man, this team actually was good. Like, if only for that dastardly Travis Green, this team would have been fine. I mean, that truly happened. And and then, you know, something really weird happened after the season, to me, Farhan, anyway. Like, this season got so overwhelming to me because I was just, I was just trying to be consistent. I was just trying to say what, say how I saw it. And I ended up kind of on an island. Like, I was like the one guy who was not convinced that this team was better. Right. I was just like, no, this team still sucks. <laughs> like, I don't see anything here that has changed my view of them. And they're relying too heavily on their goalie. And when their goalie has stopped scoring, they've started shooting 18%. And, you know, there's a ton of smoke and mirrors going on here. In fact, I see the team falling off defensively. I don't think the defense is good enough. I don't like the way they play. They don't even try to break out. Like, I, I'm, you know, I'm constantly talking about all of these things and people are completely losing it on me. Right. So negative on and on. And I I got to the point where I had to take like a mid season vacation, something I've never done in my career. Now, it wasn't just that it wasn't just the reaction that people were having to my takes. It was also that, um, you know, the pandemic was really long and hard. And, you know, I spent that time in the bubble like I hadn't really I felt like I hadn't really taken a significant break in, in two and a half years. So that was that was a big part of it, too. But I end up going away. I come back to cover the last week of the season and then something completely insane happens that has never occurred before in my career. And I doubt I'll ever have the experience again, where I went from being the most strident critic of this team out on an Island to my takes being the official party line from the club itself. (laughs) Yeah. I missed that part. (laughs) What do you mean? I mean, how like Rutherford, just just in terms of your criticism, when Rutherford said the exact same thing, I got you. Okay. Like, like literally, my, my, my criticism has become the club's take itself on their season. In fact, they might have gone further than I ever did. Well, they never talked about shooting percentage, but they certainly talked about over-reliance on the goaltender and structure and exits and, you know, because, you, yeah, for sure. So it was this very odd, odd thing. Now, how do you read where the club's at? So you've got that owner dynamic that we talked about, and you've got a management group that's come in and been unimpressed. Right. And you've got a coach that loves coaching and loves being back in, but also clearly wanted to be rewarded. Right. Clearly wanted to tell the club that the price of the brick has gone up and was stonewalled in that effort. Uh, and in fact, from the organization's public comments, it seems like management, in fact, wasn't all that thrilled by the way that the team played in one games. Right. That they thought there was more there. Uh, so, you know we get to this point where management was unwilling to extend Boudreaux. And, you know, I sort of wonder if that like from ownership side, they must've been 
thrilled with Boudreaux's level of activity. And yet, they are paying Travis Green for next season. And one wonders how much the, you know, idea when it was presented to them of, hey, let's not consider an extension for this guy, sort of appealed to their, you know, desire to be careful about committing multiple salaries to head coaches indefinitely, the way that they've, you know, often done, right? The way that they did with, there was, there was seasons where they were paying Alain Vigneault and John Tortorella, you know, and Willie Desjardins, right? Like there were seasons where that was the case. Um, if you extend Boudreaux and it doesn't work out after next season, well, you know, there's just more years of you paying two coaches at the same time. Um, I'm sure that was an appealing solution for ownership. Uh, again, this isn't me reporting. This is my way of just thinking through the dynamics, right? Um, and so we get into this season, and I think my concern with it, like, I don't see it as the best case scenario for the club, simply because I, I think it's clear that there's a difference in vision about where this team is at between coach and manager. And while that can be healthy uh, to some extent, I think the fact is, is that misalignment can also be problematic, particularly with a team that needs to take a longer view toward winning versus a coach who needs to coach to maximize every point in order to, you know, not just make his case to remain on another contract in Vancouver, but also, um, you know, to make sure that he gets a chance again at the age of 68, uh, 12 months from now, to work for another team. And I, I think overall... Well, that's that that's ultimately what happened this year, right? Like, ultimately... You know, Boudreaux wanted to do everything he could to win hockey games, as opposed to necessarily, you know, player development in the long view that you talked right. about, right? And, and well, there's and no then, reason why that wouldn't happen next year if you're Boudreaux. Well, and then and then in games where the Canucks have like single digit playoff probability, you end up overusing Thatcher Demko in midseason, right? Um, Jack Rathbone never gets a sniff. Like you know, you go down the list. There's a bunch of um, there's a bunch of things that you know I don't love. Like I don't love a team whose playoff odds never peaked above one and four, uh, playing the likes of Oliver ekman Larson, you know, 22 minutes a night, right? Like, I don't love, uh, there's a lot of things that I think this club did that were, uh, you know, the sorts of things that you could certainly side-eye with the idea of there being misalignment in mind. And and I think we're going to see it again uh, this upcoming season. And for me, that's a material risk. I know uh, there's people in this market who don't believe or don't agree with this argument, and that's totally fair. It's subjective. Uh, Jim Rutherford's among them, right? Jim Rutherford's comfortable having the so-called lame duck coach. I just, I don't love it. I think there's a, a ton of things about having that situation that creates a, a, a dissonant incentive structure between um, the club's long-term interests and and a, a very important middle manager's long-term interests. And I think whenever you get into that situation as a club, you're playing with fire. All right, uh, next question. You mentioned Jack Rathbone, so let's go there. Cardiff Devil 71 says, there are calls within the Canucks media and fan base for Jack Rathbone to be a permanent fixture on Vancouver's Blue Line next season. Do you think Trent Cull was in part concerned about Jack when he shared his opinion, re-Adam Gaudette being rushed up to the Vancouver roster underdeveloped? I think it's a great question. Um, what do you think? The, yeah, I mean, I think the, I'm sure, I'm sure that was partly something that he had in mind, but uh, I mean, the Jack Rathbone thing was interesting to me this, uh, this, uh, you know, late in the year, in part because I thought it made sense for him to stay in the AHL since he's just played so few professional games and had so little stability, uh, to this point in his professional career. I, I really thought, 
that was probably the best place for him. Uh, it's too bad that he didn't get a long playoff run. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know that you want to create a blue line where you're relying on Jack Rathbone to be an everyday player next season. But I certainly think it's important that you give him the opportunity to win that job, um, particularly if he has a big offseason. You know, the, the speed's going to play. The offense is going to play. There's some work to do in terms of his two-way game. But with how dynamic he is uh, as a skater, uh, as a passer, as a puck mover, as a shooter from the blue line, I, I think there's no question that he's going to be an NHL fixture for a long time, whether whether it's in Vancouver or elsewhere. The, the, the key for Vancouver is to make sure that it's here. And, you know, I don't think that requires them, like, slotting him in as the third pair left-handed defenseman. I don't think it requires them to not re-sign Brad Hunt, for example. But I do think you need to be mindful of creating an opportunity for him to win a job um, next season, for sure. Yeah, for me, I want to see him as the third pair left side defenseman playing with Luke Shen on the right. I think that's a perfect situation for him. I, you know, like Brad Hunt's the perfect seventh defenseman as I see it. Um, and again, like he's got to earn it. He's got to earn it uh, through sure. training camp in the preseason. And, you know, and not that there's much of training camp anymore, but he's got to earn it. Final question before we go. Um, who else was interested? This is from Kev Dog. Who else was interested in Myers when he became a UFA and do they still have the same GM now? And I just, I get a chuckle out of this because I give Rick Dollywell full credit for how much money Tyler Myers got. Because at one point in the proceedings, he went out and said, it's not going to be $7 million. And he threw $7 million and Tyler Myers out. And I can only imagine at that point, Jim Benning's like, ah, we can get him for six. Let's get it done. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I can't imagine that there was anybody else out there willing to give him six. But I was told by others who insist that there was at least one other team out there willing to give him the same contract the Canucks did. Well, here's the here's the tell. Anton Strallman signed with the Florida Panthers for three years and five point five million that summer. Mm-hmm. Comparable. I, rem- I remember the comparable. Signed for just slightly less than Tyler Myers. So, yes, there were other teams interested in acquiring Tyler Myers. No, those GMs are not still in that role with those with the, that team. And do you, are you convinced somebody else would have paid him that same number? Um. Or should Rick get a commission? No, no commission for Rick. Uh, I think, yeah, I think he, I don't think that, I think the idea that the Canucks were bidding against themselves is false. Put it that way. There you go. All right, uh, let's uh, let's wrap this one up. We haven't done a mailbag in a while. It'll be a lot of fun. We also are efforting to get uh, Bruce Boudreau on with us next week uh, as we do two shows next week. So looking forward to that. Sorry we didn't get to touch on the Battle of Alberta, but uh, lots of other pod options out there. We've got Rangers writer Arthur Stable from The Athletic. He joins the roundtable with uh, Pizzo, Granger, and Sivian this week on The Athletic Hockey Show. And as for us, thanks for your questions. Thanks for listening to the VanCast. Please follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget to leave a rating and a review. And right now, you can get annual subscriptions to The Athletic for just a dollar a month for six months when you visit theathletic.com slash VanCast. We are back early next week. For Drancer, I'm Farhan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for logging on.